0: The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Welcome to Main Street Vegan, a lively hour with host Victoria Moran, best-selling author and the OG of vegan living for over 40 years. She and her guests have got the goods to help you look and feel amazing, make a difference for animals, and discover the soulful side of the vegan journey. Now, here's Victoria. Wouldn't you like to go to school and study animal rights? Oh my gosh. When I was in college back in the ancient 80s, getting a degree in comparative religions, I was able to earn a fellowship and go to England and study vegans. The paper I wrote about that became my first book, Compassion, the Ultimate Ethic. That was pretty cool. But the idea that you could actually go to school and study about animals, what they need, what they're like, and what we can do for them was completely unheard of. But my guest today, comes from that world of animal rights and animal academia. So let's put on our thinking caps and be ready to learn with Dr. Lisa Kemmerer. Hey, everybody. It's Victoria Moran. Thank you so much for taking some time to be with us on the Main Street Vegan Podcast. We are here to educate, enlighten, and have a whole lot of fun. And you know what? I have a lot of people on that I don't know. I hear about people from other people. I get notifications of wonderful books from book publicists. But when I can talk with someone that I know and respect and admire, I just think the conversations take wings. And I'm sure that that's what's going to happen today because this woman is a keeper She is internationally known for works focused on animals, and we're going to talk about that word that she coined, and disempowered human beings. She is Professor Emeritus Dr. Lisa Kemmerer, who founded and directs the educational information sharing nonprofit, Tapestry, which you can find at tapestryofpeace.org. She is the author of more than a dozen books, including Eating Earth, Animals and World Religions, Sister Species, and her latest books, Vegan Ethics, and More: Five Reasons to Choose Vegan, and Animals and
1: Christianity. Welcome, Dr. Lisa Kemmerer. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here. And I have to say the same is true right back at you for someone who I, there aren't many people I talk to who've been in the movement at least as long as I have or longer. And there you are. There I'm looking at you.
0: We were throwing around the the, uh, 100 years between us (laughs) number. And I think that's just (laughs) about right. So that's really cool. And how wonderful that we've been in it a long time. And when it started, when we started in it, it was mm-hmm. tiny. Mm-hmm. And now a lot of people haven't been in it this long, but there are so many more of them, which is so positive and so powerful and bodes well for the
1: future, don't you think?
0: Absolutely. And I think
1: very few people have been in the movement long enough to have seen it change, all the changes we've seen, the emph- the different things that have been emphasized, the different things that people have brought to the table to talk about, And the different things that you could study and where you could go with it and what you could do in the movement. It's just, it has become huge. Talk
0: a little bit about that, Lisa. Like, what did you see when you first came in and how have you seen that change?
1: I remember when seals and fur and trapping and experimentation, vivisection, those were, that was the focus of the movement not vegan. And most of the people in the movement weren't vegan. They were vegetarian, but not vegan. And many of them weren't even vegetarian. And I'm sure you remember that too. And what a switch when it became clear that farmed animals, animals being any species other than the speaker. And I use it as a point of honesty. Scientifically, we're all animals. And when I'm talking about every other species, I use animals. So that's why it sounds a little weird when I say what most of you would say as animals. But anyway, uh, the focus changed radically when we realized that farmed animals are, they're the more farmed animals are confined, exploited, and killed than any other species. And at that point, the movement made a radical shift pretty much onto farmed animals, almost the exclusion of the other topics. And we've made some adjustment back but we are still very much, and we, it's even called the vegan movement. It used to be the animal rights movement. Now it's the vegan movement. So the focus really changed and, and hasn't changed back, although there has been some adjustment to recognize that these other causes are extremely important. And the other thing we've both gotten to see is like fish have been added now, like Fish Feel, the new organization. Finally, we have an organization for fish. And of course, Karen Davis. Karen Davis. Uh, Focused on poultry, so the addition, the expansion of the animals that we focused on in farmed animal in the within the farmed animal exploitation industries, as well as a shift in the focus across the movement for all the animals in the planet that are exploited and harmed.
0: Just this morning, I wrote a letter to the New York Times about fishes. They had an interesting article about the Mediterranean diet, which as much Mm -hmm. as we talk about whole food plant-based and the things Mm -hmm. that we know from our doctors and our our fellow movement, the plant-based movement, there is a lot of science out there really touting the Mediterranean diet, the olive oil, and all of that. And this article was about that, and they they did a good job of it. But then they talked about the fish, Mm -hmm. not so much in the article itself, but when it came to the recipes at the end, I would say they were 90% fish recipes. Mm-hmm. So I wrote to them and didn't really get into the sentience of fishes because you always want to meet people where they are. And so I, I talked about the depletion of the oceans I... and the toxic heavy metals and it mm-hmm. seems to me that when I think of people who are so up on things like the New York Times they're supposed to be writing about what's going to happen tomorrow because their paper won't come out till tomorrow <laughs> they're supposed to know more than I do mm-hmm. but the fact that they're stuck back yes all of this finish, yes what do you make of where the culture is at as a whole on animals and eating them.
1: First, thank you for writing that letter, right? That's what we have to do. We need to take the moment to do the things that we can do to bring the changes that need to happen. So thank you for that. It takes time, but it's so important. You know, where are we as a culture? Um, I, you know, the book Amore, the vegan ethics book, my, one of my most recent ones, it's why I wrote it, because there are so many reasons to go vegan, to change what we're doing. And I think that our culture, I think when you approach them about animals, oftentimes I think you're less likely to get anywhere. And, and I, I think it's, I guess I believe that is because of corporate capitalism. I think that is because of the money that these industries have and the effort they're putting into demonizing the movement. Making us look either like uh, in the nineties as they did, um, as terrorists or as crackpots, the vegan crackpots. So you know they're doing what they can, and they have compared to us unlimited sort resources. They have so much money, and they have such a voice in our world. And people have an interest in believing that because they don't want to change. That's human nature. You know, we don't we don't really want to change. So I think we have to look at other ways to deal with our culture. We have to look at the whole picture and as you say meet people where they're at so if you meet somebody that's an environmentalist you bring up what you brought up about the seas if you meet somebody who is a health health person who cares about their health you bring up the mercury and the fishes so uh, you know if you meet somebody who cares only about people then you talk maybe about poverty you talk about hunger and how we're harming indigenous peoples with our fishing industry and by stripping the fishes from the seas. So you look at these different angles, and that's what Amore is. It's the five uh, animals, medical, oppression, religion, and environment. It stands for the five things we can talk about with people to help them understand that when you're vegan, you do all of these good things. So whichever one matters to you, whichever one it is that maybe inspires you, You get all the benefits of the other four. If all you care about is animals, like many of us do in the movement, that's our focus. You're still doing all these good things for human beings and for the environment. So diversifying for our culture. I love that acronym.
0: So we've got animals, as you would say, medical, other people, religion, and the environment. Is that correct? Yes.
1: Brilliant. I actually like it better. I I tend to use oppression more often, but I like other people as well. The oppression. So it connects with, you know, the sexism of exploiting animals for their production and reproduction, taking the calves away from the dairy cows and exploiting the dairy cows and then slaughtering them. So that kind of oppression uh, of the animals that then slops over when you have the idea of oppressing, when you have this idea of power over and using them for production, reproduction. Well, you have trafficking and you have toxic masculinity in our culture that is well written about and well studied. Um, And you look at things like, why is it that we hate trans people or that we hate gays? Well, production and reproduction. When you have a capitalist country and it's all measured by production and reproduction, the cow goes to slaughter when she's six in the dairy industry because she's pretty much done what she can do that really helps the profits of the industry. And when you look at a trans person or a gay person, they're not going to put warm butts in the pews. They're not going to fill the church with people donating money. They're not going to have boots on the ground. So that same idea that you want production and reproduction in order to enhance power and maintain power. Just as one example. And there are many examples of these really interesting interwoven ideas. Well, you must have been everybody's favorite professor. So (laughs)
0: let's talk a little bit about animal rights as an academic discipline. This certainly didn't exist when I was Uh getting educated And how thrilling that it exists now. I know it's not in every college or university, but tell us about it. How did it start and how can people access it?
1: Animal studies is what the programs are generally called. So you might have like uh, animal ethics. Um, You might have a course in intersectionality that touches on speciesism. And that's, again, that other people and oppressions, how that's connected. That when you have that power over whether you're exploiting uh, people of color or women or animals, it's the same idea. That's the eco-feminist idea. So you have these different avenues and environmental studies. If they're, if they're paying attention, if there's not a, you know, a rabid meat eater running the program, then you'll have something on speciesism, also environment, because you know the number one cause of all the main problems for the environment is what we're eating. So these programs are now out there. And like you, when I went to school, they weren't there. And I, but like you, it was just, I was interested in religions. I was interested. I had this this focus on compassion and it sounds like you very much did too. So that's where I went with my studies. And then somewhere along the line, animal studies programs started to pop up and they became a thing. But you and I both followed our hearts, and it was, in essence, we created those programs for ourselves. And your book sounds amazing, on focused on compassion from back in, uh, did you say the 80s was when the studies were? Yeah, I did the research in
0: 1980, and then the book called Compassion, the Ultimate Ethic, and Exploration of Veganism was published. And do you know the name John Wynn Tyson? Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, So John Wynne Tyson was a wonderful British writer, and he actually had a little publishing house himself. But when they serialized Compassion, the Ultimate Ethic in the American Vegan Society periodical, which was kind of quarterly, and sometimes they'd miss a quarter, so it took a long time for the serialization to happen, but he was reading that. And he said, this, this really needs to be published as a book, and my publishing house is too small. I will find you a publisher. And I was too naive at the time to know that he was acting as an agent, and he should have gotten 15%. But I just said, okay, thank you. And he got me a British publisher called Thorson's, which was distributed by Harper and Row, now mm-hmm. Harper Collins. Mm-hmm. So they did a beautiful, beautiful little book, didn't sell a lot of copies, but after it went out of print, after seven or eight years, the American Vegan Society took it over and they uh, publish it now. But it was amazing to look at vegans in the UK at that time, because as hard as it is for people to get their minds around it now, because we have such a vibrant movement, vegan movement and animal rights movement in the US, there were so few vegans in this country that to study them here would require vast travels. But in the UK, because they'd had veganism longer, and it's a smaller landmass, I was able to meet all these fascinating people and, and, Write wow. about them and and learn from them, so it was, yeah, it was quite a thing. So what was your basic what were your degrees?
1: International studies out of college and then comparative religions in my undergrad no, I'm sorry, in my master's and then my doctorates in philosophy
0: so it's interesting to me, Lisa that you got your PhD in philosophy, because I'm thinking about Peter Singer, a philosopher, and his 1975 book, Animal Liberation, that actually gave us the term animal rights. So is that what really made the switch of having these programs happen? Maybe you weren't the only person studying philosophy with the idea that you were going to be focusing
1: on animals? It's one of the main channels in, and of course there was Tom Reagan too, and he's the person who actually does animal rights. Uh, Peter Singer's a utilitarian, so no rights involved there. You have no rights. It's a trade-off in utilitarianism, the greatest good for the greatest number. I thought he coined the term animal rights. Is that incorrect? I I would be very surprised if he did. Okay. Very surprised, but I, I, I can't say for sure. But Tom Reagan's book, written about the same time, was absolutely a rights-based book that said they have rights because they have these same qualities that we have, and we have our rights based on these qualities. And therefore, animals ought to have these rights as well. So it's a and in philosophy, that's what philosophers do, is they, you know, they play with those kinds of ideas and they they push the limits and they expand thought and they'll take an idea and they'll say, Well, if it's true here, consistency requires that it be true here. So it's it's a it's a no-brainer, both for philosophy and religion. And of course, religion and philosophy have always been linked in academia and just generally the way they function. Religion used to be the core of all of them. And now a um, you know, PhD is it, it's philosophy. That's what the term means. And now it's just used for all sorts of different disciplines, which came later on. So it's a great place for animal ethics to be put. And then for animal studies to emerge out of that and to be something now that has all these different branches, and we've gotten to watch them grow, right? That now we we can see that there's a psychological element, there's a a media, there's an art study. Oh, I love the artistic study where you interpret the arts, and you can see the oppression in like, the classic, is the old western paintings where the horses in particular and the cattle, they're just they're just there to be exploited and abused and harmed. Nobody cares about them. The focus is the cowboy, And, you know, the that image of the tough, indifferent, cruel, if you will, cowboy. So all these different branches now, it's no longer just ethics and philosophy and it's no longer religion. Um, it's across the board, sociology. I don't think you can name an area of study that doesn't engage with the subject now.
0: And I think some people say, oh, good heavens, that's just ivory tower stuff, but that's where things start. And it might start in the ivory tower, and it might all be theoretical at the beginning, but then it bursts out of there as all of these bright young graduates get out into the world. And then it seeds what we have now as an extremely vibrant and vital movement. We still critical mass. (laughs) Well, we're working on it. It, it, We are working. So let's talk a little bit about religion, since that is certainly an interest of mine, and I suppose I'm pretty generous with religions. I really like to leave the door open wide because I think that religious people of any faith tradition, spiritual but not religious, the whole thing, these are people trying to make sense of life, like a philosopher, and and who believe that life has meaning. And I always find it easy to talk with people who have some sort of faith system even if they completely disagree with mine and think that I'm going to burn for eternity, at least that person believes life has meaning, and so do I. So talk wow. with us a little bit about your latest book, Animals in Christianity, and then we'll get into some of the other religions
1: of the world. It is so frustrating to me that most of the movement has rejected religion. And for you and I, it was one of the ways, like the second wing that flew us into the movement. So the reason I'm now, Tapestry focuses on religions. It's one of the focuses of the nonprofit educational sharing organization that I founded since retiring and where I'm putting all my energy now. And the reason being that it has been so much neglected. And yet, as a teacher, and I taught in Montana, where I, you know, just very conservative students and and very Christian. And you can teach ethics and philosophy and make strong points and be completely rational and there's no way anybody can argue with you and you're not gonna change anybody if they don't wanna change, if they're not interested. Now, if you go to their religion and say, hey, look here, this is what your religion says and they're sincere, you have change. And I experienced that again and again, in my courses, that it was people of faith who realized that their religion, the core of their religion is love and compassion and caring, that this is what Jesus, this is the, the, the central teaching of Christianity. And here they were doing something so incredibly cruel. And once those dots were just overtly connected for them, They were able to start exploring a new path. And then, you know, you plug them into the different foods they can try and, you know, kind of help in in Montana in particular, help them find a path. But the point being, compared to an atheist who can simply say to you, I don't care. When you're talking to someone of faith who's committed and sincere, all you have to do is give the other half of that, which is education. And when you combine sincerity with knowledge and the path is clear, you will have change.
0: One of the things that fascinates me about early Christianity is the large number of vegetarians and presumably vegan, because at that time I don't think people would be raising animals for so called byproducts, but certainly vegetarians in the early church. We know that even in Paul's letters, He was arguing about this. He wanted people to stop talking about what they were eating because there were more important things to deal with, in his Mm -hmm. opinion. But Mm -hmm. within the first 200 years of Christianity, there were so many of the early church fathers and and the early saints in the church who were historically documented vegetarians. Why -hmm. do you think that was?
1: Well, I think it has to do with not with compassion, unfortunately. I think it has to do with giving up. That there's this tendency in religions, commitment to God as a giving up of something, a sacrifice. That's the word I was looking for. That this idea of sacrifice, and we went from, you know, early, early sacrifice, we'd sacrifice our family members or the eldest child or whatever it was you're sacrificing. And then it came to sacrificing animals. And then it was sacrificing grains or milks or whatever it was in the different religion. And then pretty much across the board in this evolution, religions turned to an internal sacrifice where you give something up of yourself. So giving up those most treasured foods, the richest, you know, the foods that everybody wanted the most, was the way to show sacrifice. So, as we look at Christianity today, other
0: than a few places, the Seventh day Adventists, uh, Trappist monks, we know the founders of Unity were very vocal vegetarians, and some of the clergy there are trying to bring it back now. Mm-hmm. I know some Quakers are vegetarian as part of their wanting to be in solidarity with people who don't have options and choices and rich foods. But generally speaking, you're not going to walk into your standard church and get a sermon about meat Mm. or anything else about animals. Yes. Why is
1: that? And is Mm. there a way in? Yes, of course there is. And so why is that, again, economics? You can't alienate the people in the pews if you're going to have them showing up and donating money to the church. You have to be mainstream. And so this is one of the problems when churches become mainstream. Okay, so when Christianity was new and it wasn't mainstream, they could be as radical as, as Jesus was because they weren't mainstream. And who cares who they offend? It's only going to attract those who are truly interested in those ideas. But Constantinople, around those times when Christianity became a, a dominant, a mainstream faith, it had to cater more to the needs and interests of people. All right, so once that happened, once that happened, once it was that the religion became mainstream, then the church is based on money and gathering money from the people. So you have to keep them happy. Now, what's our way in? Um, Our way in is education. And of course, I'm an educator, but our way in is education. If people understand why they're doing what they're doing, or if they understand what their religion, okay, you talked about Paul. So, what's Paul saying? If you look closely at what Paul's saying, what it comes down to is this don't eat something that's going to drive people out of the church. Right? Is that familiar to you? Does that make sense to you? Is that ringing? Okay, yeah. And, and it should. So, that's the main idea that Paul is saying whatever you do. So, for example, don't eat things offered to idols. It might give people the wrong idea. Right? So, we want them to stay in the church and stay solid so nowadays who's being driven out of the churches vegans right and this is why i say we've come to hate our religions because they from the pulpit we hear such horrible things such frustrating things things that we just don't want to hear we're like you know are you really you're up there giving me a sermon and you're so out to lunch about the environment about the suffering about your own health I mean, you're not even qualified to be standing up there. I'm leaving, right? So this tends to be our frustration. And we are right. It is ignorance. It's ignorance most fundamentally of the church and the teachings of the church, right? Because the Bible, God creates a vegan world. Why? Because we have a compassionate God in Christianity and in the Hebrew tradition as well. So then you go through the next chapters where humans show violence and god is extremely unhappy about that and you know that so then you have the unhappiness and the flood and then god says now okay I, humans really aren't really aren't what i thought they were going to be and they 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 seem to be flawed in their nature yes we are flawed in our nature so then god says now i give you everything as i gave you the seeds and the green things so again education if you if you don't if you just look at The part where God says, now I give you everything, then you might say, well, I'm fine to eat whatever I want. But if you look at the entirety of scripture, if you look at the fact that we have a compassionate God in all the Psalms and and Proverbs that talk about God's hand feeding and caring for all of creation and how God sees that it's a beautiful world and how God creates a world in which what we're eating is all the seeds and the green things. And then you see that it's violence that God calls corruption, and that's around Genesis 6, and you see that unhappiness. And then you see around Genesis 9, now I give you everything. Then to argue that you're entitled to eat these things because Genesis 9 tells you to, again, it lacks sincerity. If you are sincere in your faith and you see what Scripture really says and what's really wanted, then you make the change to a vegan lifestyle.
0: Yes. I love the story. Um, Jeffrey uh, Cohan, um, who's a wonderful uh, Jewish vegan, mm-hmm. was uh, sharing with me about Numbers 19 when the Hebrews are in the desert and they have escaped slavery in Egypt, but they miss meat. And they go to ah, Moses and say, yeah. We want some meat, we'd rather be enslaved <laughs> in Egypt than eat more of this manna that is coming yes, from yes. heaven. Yes. And so Moses went up and conferred with Yahweh who said, "Let them have meat until it is coming out of their nostrils." And I I loved that wording because as a parent, I can remember, you know, sometimes when you're trying to to talk to kids and get them to understand like let's not have jelly beans for dinner, you finally just say, "Okay, just, you know, eat the jelly beans, see if I care. It doesn't mean that you're sanctioning that. No, it's just that's right. I'm so fed up. And of course, yes, in that yes. particular story, the little bird's quail, I believe, fell from the heavens and people ate them greedily and uh died as a result. So these are some pretty
1: powerful stories. Yes. And the way they're talked about, right, they're called the rabble, the ones that clamor for the flesh. And right again, that key idea that God is providing vegan food. Really, how how many times do we have to see this to get it?
0: I think there is a connection. You know, we always talk about separation of church and state, but there is a tremendous connection of church and culture. And when the culture depends on meat, loves meat, beef, mm-hmm. it's what's f- for dinner, yes. yes, it's hard for the church to separate from yes. that. Well, I was just going to say, before we leave Christianity, I wanted to ask you specifically about Catholicism. Mm-hmm. And I know that in 2019, the mm-hmm. million dollar vegan people tried to get the Pope, who's, who's a wonderful man, who's really done some yes. very, very, um, extraordinary things since <laughs> since he has been pope, they tried to encourage him to be vegan only for Lent, only for forty days, and giving up certainly meat for Lent is something that has gone on as traditional in Christianity. I mean, it's not a, a radical stance, but evidently somebody at the Vatican thought it was pretty radical because even though this organization was going to donate $1 million to the charity of the Pope's choosing. Mm -hmm. That is a million dollars to get some very Catholic human rights stuff done, Mm. but he wouldn't do it or couldn't do it. Yes. So sometimes I fantasize, is there a big organization that we can get to go vegan? and?
1: You think it'll ever be the Catholic Church? Yes, I do. And uh, again, it's like you said, going vegan or at least leaving meat off has been traditional down through the years for Lent. But again, it's that they don't want to alienate the money sources. And, you know, big meat is huge. Big dairy is huge. The fishing industry, huge. They're just so powerful and there's so much money and there's so many people that um, will argue, oh, the jobs, oh, the people, oh, this and that. And again, this is why I say a book like Amore, if we could have gotten that in to Pope Francis, if he could read that he's helping people by going vegan, that you can't help people unless you change to a vegan lifestyle because you're wrecking the earth and you're wrecking their health and you're teaching, you're both assuming And propagating and maintaining and passing on the tradition of exploitation. And that doesn't just affect animals, it affects people as well. Wow. That's a T shirt. You can't
0: help people unless you go vegan. Mm. It's true. Ah, okay. Let's just take a little breather on that, Dr. Lisa Kemmerer, and we will be right back. And welcome back to the Main Street Vegan program here on mindbodyspirit.fm. My guest today is Dr. Lisa Kemmerer. She is an animal rights treasure. She is also an academic, and she is at the helm of the organization Tapestry, tapestryofpeace.org, which reaches out to religious and spiritual people with the message of animal rights. So Dr. Lisa Kemmerer, let's move beyond Christianity, and we did touch on Judaism some as well, And let's talk about some of the other religions of the world. So staying within the Abrahamic tradition, let's move into Islam. And for me, that's always been a difficult religion philosophically in terms of animal rights because of the Eid, because of the uh, Mm. command that an animal be slaughtered or you pay for an animal to be slaughtered to reenact the story of Abraham killing an animal instead of his son. Mm -hmm. I had a lovely young woman from Saudi Arabia. She was my youngest Main Street Vegan Academy student until Vegan Evan came with his mom. I think he was 11. But um, this young woman came at 18. She had been studying at NYU. And she wanted to do something like start a PETA Saudi and I met her mother one day and I said, is it safe? You know, can she do that? And she said, oh, yes, it, it, she's absolutely fine. As long as she says, be vegan 363 days a year. So, I, and I know also that, that the Prophet Muhammad said many beautiful things about animals. Of mm-hmm. And yet, as in all the religions... There's so many things that conflict.
1: Yes, yes. And uh, unlike the Hebrew text, it doesn't overtly show uh, veganism at the outset as the ideal diet, on the one hand. On the other hand, it does. Because remember that the Jewish and Christian texts, not all of them, but Genesis is definitely one of them, are also sacred for the Muslims. But of course, the Quran does supersede it. And there are places in the Quran where it does talk about, and in a way that makes it look acceptable, the eating of flesh. But remember this again, back to Amori. There are five reasons to go vegan. So fine, remove remove animals, remove the first one. You still have the health. And just like Christianity, which teaches your body is a temple, right? It's the same idea that you are to look after. It's a very strong teaching in the Islamic tradition where you are to, to treat your body in a way that is sacred and take care. And eating animal products doesn't. So there's the medical side of it, as well as zoomorphic diseases that we're causing with. I mean, God, what a better place than this, the sacrifice you're talking about that for, for this to be a problem, this kind of disease. It, they have been deadly they've killed so many people. So caring about people, health issues, there's no question that these kinds of sacrifices are problematic. So the medical side, oh, one more thing on the medical side. Then there's the things like the antibiotics that we're stuffing down their throats so that, what is it, 70 or 80% of our antibiotics are fed to farmed animals, and we have a problem with antibiotic resistance so that we can't help ourselves. right, so Right? That's just an example of how you can approach someone and, and, and with really strong arguments that if their faith is very clear that they are to look after their health and the health of others, and vegan is the way to do that. So again, you look to the AMORE, the different possibilities, and you meet people where they're at. And in the Islamic faith, as in every faith, there is a strong, strong tradition of looking after the environment, of respecting the world that was created. And again, the five primary threats to the environment are all caused by our diet being focused on animals. And again, oppressions. So look to the others, and you'll have no trouble showing how the Islamic teachings tell us that we need. Not just suggest it, they tell us that we need to be vegan. We must be vegan to be respectful. So, what you're
0: saying, it sounds to me, is like people within these various faiths, when they understand about veganism from any perspective, they are the ones to get in there and really make it happen, as certainly many people are. So, let's move now to the Ahimsa traditions, the religions that come from India, Jainism, Hinduism. Buddhism, and uh, let's talk about those.
1: These faiths are generally known by people from, let's say, Western Europe and uh, those in the generally called the Western traditions. North America, these ones are known to be very animal friendly, right? So, and there are some wonderful things in these uh, in these traditions. Uh, take for example, the idea of karma and ahimsa. So you have this idea, karma means action. So the idea that your actions are what determine your future. So karma literally means action. And as your actions, so your next lives, not life, but lives. So you're developing this string of futures. So if you cause suffering and misery, you will suffer misery as well. If you exploit, if you slaughter, you're creating negative karma. And depending on which tradition, karma can be viewed, is viewed in different ways. But in all of them, it's a negative outcomes that stem directly from our action. And the idea of ahimsa, and this is one of the, when I, when I was teaching, this is one of the things that I kind of kept exploring and learning more about. This idea of ahimsa means not to harm, ah, uh, not, himsa, harma, ahimsa. So in the Western traditions, Christianity, let's say, focuses on love. So love, we tend to cut short. We tend to imagine that it's only human beings, completely unsubstantiated by texts, by scriptures. In fact, it is clearly otherwise when you look at how God in the Hebrew text treats all the living beings that that come in need. But uh, Ahimson, not to harm, in some ways, It's a lesser requirement. You don't have to overtly love them. But you do need to not harm them. And they have extended that across species. So it's just a really interesting comparison of what the two traditions have done with what they were given as their main or ethic.
0: So fascinating that I think in all the traditions, and I'm saying this from having traveled in India and in other places, the reality of life can interfere with the teachings. So for example, if people need to kill the goat because there's nothing else to eat, mm. then they'll kill the goat. So what mm. you were talking about before about human rights and um, disempowered human beings mm. and equality and, and being sure that the basic needs of people are met is going to take us some distance toward making
1: veganism more appealing.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. An excellent point. And and thank you for not avoiding these really complicated areas. And, you know, one of the things I try to talk about, and for me, let's go with the fishes because they're so often ignored but when i speak strongly and loudly and and with with conviction against fishing i am focused on those industries because that's my culture now i don't want anybody eating the fishes but here's what i know there are indigenous peoples that are working inside their own cultures to bring those necessary changes so i try to focus on my culture which is certainly causing the the biggest biggest chunk of the problems that you know it's the we are the ones that have really upset the earth and species and made our oceans into what the pew commission called something like silent collapse because we can't see it and we don't know what's going on under there but the eating of the fishes and the stripping of the seas is causing a silent collapse as well as the land industry which then sends the nutrients the pollutants out into the oceans and creates dead zones which you know they're hundreds, hundreds of thousands of kilometers or, or miles as well. Uh, 800, uh, the biggest one now, it's pro- it's approaching a thousand square miles. So these huge areas that we've killed by land, the, where the land agriculture, and this is land ag- agriculture affecting the seas. And I love these, I love these connections. I love how all the different reasons why we need to rethink what we're eating. And they all come to the same thing. Go vegan. So how do we do that? So let's just talk in practicalities.
0: A lot of people would say, oh my gosh, you know, academia and religion, the two most impractical things there are. And yet we live in this world and we're out there doing things. Mm -hmm. So what do you think We can do to shine our light. I think lots of times the arguments we get are hypothetical. We'll ask, well, what about Indigenous people? I'm not really concerned about what Indigenous people need to do. Mm -hmm. They're not harming the planet, they're doing what they do, and there are very few of them. Yes. And many of them Uh, don't have a choice. Mm -hmm. Yes. And here we are with all of our farmed animals outweighing humans and wildlife by many times. Mm -hmm. So, what do we do? Because, you know, vegans don't have the world's best reputation in terms of talking about their message in a kind and respectful manner. So, how do we really show up in? a way that the animals deserve to be represented.
1: Educated. We show up informed. We show up understanding the big picture. And I'm the first to say I didn't. For decades, I didn't. And you've been in this long enough. I'm guessing you could say the same thing. It was an evolution. There was just so much to learn. And when we started, there really wasn't intersectionality. That came years afterwards. I mean, so... I, I remember being, I would say I was one of the most ignorant animal activists that ever hit the planet. I specialized in it. But the important thing is when I would bump into new ideas, I didn't get angry. I didn't try to shout people down. I was interested so that I was able to start learning the things I needed to know to be a more sensitive, and to let that compassion that's natural to me be manifest. Not just in strident and ignorant defense of animals, but in the broad spectrum where it is rightly applied, I love what you do. I love what you say. I love what you write. So
0: tell us a little bit about tapestry, what you guys do, and how we
1: can be of help. Thank you. Tapestry is a is what i I retired early, determined to focus my energy. Uh, if I look at my life divided into thirds or whatever, I'm you know i not going to live that much longer. I My brain being sharp, being able to sit and focus as long as I need to. Let's say I have 20 good years ahead of me. There is so much I want to do with regard to the things that I have been privileged to learn. And I want to get them back out to the world in a way that is e- either very inexpensive or free. So, for example, the book Amore and uh, Christianity and Animals, I want to put them online for free. And all of these, this Uh, animalsandreligion.org is where all of the religions, I have Judaism up, Christianity's ready to go. I need somebody to help me with Squarespace to get these things online, but they will all be free. And the books like Amore, it's, I don't know, it's roughly $10. So, trying to get the information, trying to get the things that I, have been privileged to learn and to focus on in the classroom and in my studies out into the world in, in ways that are simple to, and easy to read. And did you find them easy to read, the books? Yes. Victoria? Good. Now, this is my world, however. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> it's, true. yes I, it's true. I
0: love the topic. I I can get lost in in books like yours. It's
1: true. You're no judge of anything. You've been reading about this for so long. Good point. I try to use simple language and to put things in terms that almost anyone can understand. But thank you for that reality check. So true. So what we do is we, uh, we I say we, I am the one who does all of the work because I am the one who try, is trying to give back what it is I've been gifted in my lifetime and to make sure it's accessible. And the board is there to support me and do what a board does. But largely, it's my time and energy. So it's a slow process. And what again, what I really need help with is Squarespace. Uh, putting things up online, but anyone connect with me. It's easy to find me, lisakemmer.com or tapestry, tapestryofpeace.org. And you can find my email there and you can be in touch with me. And I would, I love to work with anyone out there who wants to help. And Mm -hmm. can I just say, every time I talk to you, I just love who you are more. I learn more about you. I love what you've been doing all these years and still doing. And thank you for that.
0: Oh, that's so sweet of you to say. You know, how can you not when the animals speak to you? So mm-hmm. I did want to, as we uh, wind down here, and I want to, of course, uh, share with the listeners that we will put your URLs on the show notes at uh, MainStreetVegan.com. But before we leave, I want you to tell us about your companion animals. Who are they? What they're, What are they like?
1: How did they come into your life? Well, my dogs. Uh, when I go to adopt a dog, I always say, "Which one are you? Which one isn't going to find a home? Which one's been here the longest? Which one's your most problematic?" And so I end up with this wonderful assortment of challenging. Dogs. So that's what I've got right now. I got a pit bull mix who was just hyperactive when I brought her home. Uh, Sweetest, most wonderful being as she settled into a home. And now she's old, gray all over her face. And she actually has cancer. She has a tumor in her lung. But I will be with her until I I cannot be anymore. And this is the thing animals in our spirituality and our love of religions to learn about life and death. I just, there's animals, we almost always outlive them and then one after another in succession. And there's so much to be learned from that, from that gift of love and life and of letting go. And then starting again, even though your heart is still with the one you've lost. So that's my doggies. The other one is a border collie mix who was being the, actually she, unusually for me, came from a neighbor who was just neglecting and abusing her. And she is a very difficult dog because of her background past. She's growly and snarly and snappy, but really all she needs is just to feel affirmed. She wants to believe she can trust people and to feel safe. Now, my kitties, Mr. Wilson, showed up uh, as a flea-bitten stray. And flea-bitten, boy, I'll tell you, he brought in fleas that I fought, <laughs> fought for a long time to clear my house out. But, okay, come on in, Mr. Wilson. Miss Miss Wilma came from Wyoming with my sister when she came back uh, out to where we are now on the West Coast. And she was a barn cat who showed up uh, in the barn, just clearly desperate to be taken in. Very beautiful, but just matted, matted hair. She's such a people person. Who could put her out in a bar? I don't know. She just chirps. She says, she pad, pad, pad. She runs after me. She's so sweet. And the third cat is another boy called um, Paprika, Uncle Paprika. And uh, Uncle Pappy, as I call him, and he was came. He was outside as a stray, and had a sore foot, and so I had to get him and get his. He's my golden cat, thousand dollar foot, but he's okay now. He had an infection that they couldn't figure out what it was or how to beat it, but they did. And again, the sh- the local shelter where I live is so wonderful. So they have helped me in ways to make make my critters help, and now Waggy, my pit bull with her, huge expenses uh, from her cancer, just trying to give her meds that help her to stay stabilized. And so that's my family, and I love them all. Oh, that's beautiful.
0: I think it's so important, especially in a setting like a podcast when it's audio only, people aren't seeing your smiling face, but to kind of get to know people as individuals, as humans, as people who love people, who love animals, who who have connections. And that's how I think we can all connect. And I actually envision a time when people will be able to communicate a lot better than they've been communicating lately. And I think one way that we can do this is through... Our combined enchantment with animals. And it may be just companion animals, maybe horses, maybe wildlife, for starters. And then I think we can do that beautiful expansion of our circle of compassion and come to embrace more of the animals in the laboratories, the animals on the farms. And I believe that's how we're going to get us some good old peace on earth. <laughs> so, uh, yes. Dr. Kemmerer,
1: let me give you the last word. What's up? <laughs> just thank you. Just thank you again. It is such a pleasure to talk with someone who has been an activist for as long, if not longer, than I have. And I think you've actually been an activist for longer because I took so long to get my ass together and focus on activism. For, for you, it was the center of your life for, for a very long time. And for me, it's just been part of my life for a very long time. So Thank you and hats off for all that you've done. I I admire your work and I thank you for your work. Oh,
0: you are kind. You know, it's interesting that you would say that center of your life thing, and I I do want to go there for the people listening, for whom animal rights is the center of their life, and how beautiful that is. And I think sometimes it's for a whole life, and sometimes it's for parts of a life. When my daughter was born, I received a letter from this lovely man that I mentioned early on, John Wynne Tyson, who caused my first book to be published. And he wrote to me and included a message from his wife when my daughter was born. And it said, Rachel Adair is the most important animal for now. And I remember when I read that, I didn't know what to do with it because I had been a mom for days. (laughs) I had been an animal activist for years. And yet it came to me, yes, she is the most important animal for now. But by the time she was three, she was demanding to come with me to protest. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of a sweet thing. And I think if we kind of let life take us where it takes us. And it does have these different chapters and these different emphases. Mm -hmm. We can just sort of be molded a little bit by whatever sort of divine energies you believe in to uh, leave the world better than we found it.
1: So beautiful. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Dr. Lisa Kemmerer. And thanks to everybody listening. You guys are just the best. I know we did this show for almost 10 years, and then when Unity Online Radio folded, and I was thinking, wow, 10 years once a week, that's a lot. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so now we're back. We're back every other week. That's my kind of, do we say semi-retirement now that I'm (laughs) 73, but it's such a wonderful opportunity to get to talk to people like Dr. Kemmerer. And please, everybody, let me know who you want on this program. Let me know what you want to hear. Let me know what you want to talk about. And one way that you can do that is by contacting me through my website, MainStreetVegan.com, Or you can join the uh, Facebook group, which is Main Street Vegan Podcast and Salon. And if you haven't heard yet, I do have also every other week on alternating Thursdays, we come up with a live stream that you can actually view on Unchained TV. So you just download the Unchained TV app or you get to Unchained TV on your computer. And you can watch not only the Main Street Vegan Salon, but all kinds of interview shows, news shows, reality shows. It's a whole network that is just about animal issues. Now we record record, uh, the salon live here in New York City in a studio, but Dr. Lisa Kemmerer, if you find yourself here in the Big Apple, I love living in a city that's named for a vegan food That's great to have you on the salon as well. So everybody, bless your hearts. And now let's all go out and make Main Street vegan. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Find out more about today's episode at MainStreetVegan.com, where you can also learn how to take your vegan or plant-based outreach to the professional level through Main Street Vegan Academy, and join our inner circle at the Main Street Vegan Podcast listeners group on Facebook. See you next time.
1: Life is hard, and sometimes you need a little help and guidance. I'm Laura West, host of A Guided Life Podcast, and I believe that help is all around us just have to ask for it. The universe has a way of guiding us forward with the help of our past loved ones, angels, spirit guides, and ascended masters. On the podcast, I love to explore these ideas with incredible guests and let people know that they are never alone. Make sure you subscribe and follow so you can join me on this journey. Part of the MindBodySpirit.fm network and wherever you get your podcasts.